Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for Liberal Arts for Southern New Hampshire University's online history programs. In this episode, we continue our series on how historians research and write on historical topics. In our previous episodes, we discussed how historians select research topics and develop research questions. Now it's time to start finding information to answer the question. It has been beaten into historians that we use primary sources and secondary sources to support our historical arguments. Now to recap, primary sources are those created by people who participated in or were witness to historical events. These might be memoirs, diaries, letters, interviews, or some other form of testimony. Secondary sources are created by people who did not participate or directly witnessed those historical events. Those authors who are usually writing after the fact, whether it's days, years, decades, or centuries, use the available and existing primary sources to reconstruct that event. Pretty much every history book is a secondary source, though some historians might quibble that textbooks or encyclopedia entries count as what we might call tertiary sources, but we don't need to get into that right now. Today we are focusing on the secondary sources. These are usually the best places to start in a research project because they have done a lot of the preliminary work for you. They have found a bunch of primary sources and made sense of them. They have established the general timeline of events. They have identified the important players in those events. And they represent the sum of the historian's knowledge on a topic at the time that the secondary work was created. Other secondary sources later may dispute earlier works because of newly discovered primary sources or changing interpretations, but there is almost always something of value in any secondary source. So, in this episode, my hand-picked panel of historians will discuss different ways to search for relevant and useful secondary sources, how to determine which secondary sources might be more useful or important than others, and the historian's ethical responsibility to be familiar with the entire existing literature on a topic. Like in our previous two episodes, the panel of historians consists of Eric Greisinger, Allison Millward, C.B. Repass, Matt Chandler, and Ryan Tripp. Okay, historians, so we have a topic in mind, and we've developed a research question to guide us. How do we get started finding secondary sources to help us answer that research question? Utilize your library. (laughs) Right. Those librarians, when I call them... They're so happy. To, they, they really, really want to be able to help you out. Um, but I do. I do send uh, students to the library. I said, but don't expect them to do your work for you. They're going to guide you. And here, you know, here's how you can find this. I'm, that library on the, on the online has so many things. And I have found so many sources in there. But you got to really know those subcategories a lot of times. And uh, they're, they're a wealth of information. I would, I would always say, use your library first. There are two main approaches that I tend to suggest to students, and it, it depends on how your brain works individually. I like to start on a database like JSTOR and do some simple keyword searches, see what's out there, get a uh, sort of a litmus test or, or a barometric reading, whatever silly analogy you want to use there. Uh, are there sufficient sources from a quick keyword search? If that's the case, 
I'll maybe start to branch out to something like a meta search. So in, at, at SNHU, that search box at the Shapiro Library homepage, that'll bring up every resource from all of our EBSCOhost databases and others. But that can be overwhelming for some. Myself, I do like to target at first and see what is available through a, J, a JSTOR type database. And then I will branch out after that. But one of the skill sets that I do not see employed enough is the use of advanced keyword searches where you're linking terms powerfully together. So in this case, we'd be talking about Boolean operators and not if and the like. So that I don't like to do at first. So for instance, I, like you had suggested about the broadness of a, of, a, of a research question, let's say I'm looking at the causes of the French Revolution. All right. I mean, looking for that is it's impossibly big or the fall or decline of the Roman Empire. You know, I could probably think of 16 different examples right there. So you really would want to focus on something more narrow in your research. And your research question should be narrow enough that you can find the resources necessary, right? Um, but I do think that when we are looking for uh, scholarly sources, the key thing to do is to utilize the best materials we have available. And that would be through paywall databases. Now, certainly there are some ethical considerations when it comes to the questions of paywalls. However, that's the way the world does work at this point. And we're going to get more accurate information in a world that is riven with disinformation and misinformation. We have to be incredibly careful as historians because we do have a professional obligation and a societal obligation to make sure that what we're presenting as our finished product is based upon the strongest evidence that we can find in secondary sources. So a skill set that we have to develop as historians is not just uh, reading a source, but what you can eventually start to do, and this takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, but once you really start to hone the skill set, you can scan a list of sources and based upon the journal, based upon the date, based upon the author's name, based upon the title, you can make some determinations and whittle that list down very quickly. But at first, you're going to be reading widely, you're going to be reading a lot of different things, and you're probably going to be rejecting a number of sources because they don't quite fit. The upside of that, though, is you're gaining exposure to different ideas, different historiographical perspectives, and that also might help you reframe your research questions so it aligns with the existing concepts and arguments, and then you can make a contribution to that field, or you can challenge the accepted paradigm of that field and offer your own insights. So. The key thing here is quality, veracity, accuracy, and the ability that if you can access them. So, for example, let's use the French uh, Revolution again. If you don't read French and you're working on an MA level or a PhD level paper, you really are going to be at a disadvantage when it comes to both secondary and more so in primary sources, but even with secondary sources, because you might not have the most current historiographical scholarship coming out of the Francophone world. So that is a consideration as well when you're doing all of these things. Do you speak any foreign languages? Do you read any foreign languages? It's not going to be an issue at the bachelor's level, or it might not even be an, an issue at the MA level, but it's nevertheless something to consider, especially if your goal is to develop a research program from the bachelor's through the master's to the PhD, working on the same type of topic. You want to be making leaps. And as you get more sophisticated in your understanding of a topic, you might need to get beyond what's in translation and read in the original language. And I would add once, you know, talk to the librarian, use the library. And once you find, um, you know, a, a, a good source, right? Um, uh, uh, check the bibliography, 
because that that secondary source is going to lead you to other secondary sources, um, you know, and it and and that might not be definitive for you. You might still have to look for other sources, sure, but it's going to provide a really good map of where else you should be looking, um, especially if you kind of get stuck and you find yourself at the library databases, like typing in the same keywords, um, you know, that that bibliography for maybe that one source you've got, I promise, will be a wealth of knowledge for you. And I would add to that that not only look at the bibliographies, but whatever your subject matter is, and I'll take it from my perspective, military history, uh, find the leaders in that field. So World War One, World War Two, and look at their bibliographies specifically. And what's the best way for somebody just starting out to identify the, the big names in the field? Well, I always suggest... Um, going to something like Society for Military History and joining while you're in school so that you get to start to know the circles of people there. And if they're not leaders, they're going to name who the leaders are and you're going to get a quarterly newsletter that is full of books, full of peer-reviewed stuff. And that's going to be one, one avenue, at least starting out. Uh, oftentimes, I'm thinking of uh, the Society for the History of Technologies Journal, Technology and Culture. Um, they'll often put out a full bibliography of the best books in the history of science, technology and medicine for a given few years. And that might be overwhelming. They almost look like comprehensive PhD reading exam lists, but it can give you a sense of, of that. And I, I think that, yes, if you're reading textbooks, even right, we don't we use textbooks as main sources for for especially upper level courses, but they always have suggested readings in the back. You know, there's always going to be an indication that these are the the leading scholars in that field. And it is helpful to identify, you know, um, someone uh, who is the leading historian of, say, the causes or origins of the French Revolution? Who is the leading historian on the history of plastics? Who's the, who, who's the leading historian? And again, if you agree with them, that can be wonderful. But if you disagree with them, that is okay. Just because you don't have 17 PhDs, it doesn't mean that you can challenge somebody who's more credentialed than you, but and that actually can be a great exercise. If you can challenge the arguments of someone who really knows their stuff, you're also going to start to really know your stuff, right? And you're going to be able to pivot. And like you suggested, if you, you could then challenge somebody, they can challenge you and you'll have answers to their questions and vice versa. That creates historical dialogue, which also can further the the research on that project, right? So sometimes even talking to another historian, what did you read on that topic, right? Uh, the Seven Years' War, what did you read? Well, I read this, I didn't really like it, I read that, I found it wonderful. You might actually want to look at the book that they didn't find wonderful because they said it's not good because of this, this, and this. You might find this, this, and this to be exactly what you want. So remember, it is personal also. You have to find what works for you. But yes, there's going to be leading historians on those topics and you really can't bypass them. Uh, I think you do have to engage with their with their scholarship. So I agree with you. Now that students have, you know, access, you know, to the web, um, right, in, in ways, I guess maybe I didn't when I was undergrad and graduate, um, uh, there are published historiographies, right? I mean, just starting out um, with my own research, um, there's several websites that have historiographies, right, on topics that may, even if they're not identical to, to the topic I was looking at, they were similar enough. And within those historiographies, you will see 
Um, they usually identify what key works are, first of all, but you tend to see the same historian over and over again, too. Um, so so those are those are helpful. Allison, you made me smile. You said, you said, you know, they have the students have so much. <laughs> I was just thinking back to the card catalog of my day. <laughs> yes, I, I am pre-internet. Yeah. Yeah. And we need to stress too that when they find, when they start finding their sources, well, I, I would hope if they're going to work with the librarian, it's going to be a credible source, but something that, you know, they have to delve into the credibility and the viability of the author. How do we do that? How would a student um, be able to determine the legitimacy or credibility of a specific secondary source? You do the bio biographical deep dive into who is that author. Finding out, first of all, if they're writing about military history, who are they? Who is this person? Is he, you know, does he have any credibility in the military sector? If they're writing about the medical effects, the after the after effects uh, medically from the Chernobyl fallout, do they even have any medical background? Are they a journalist? Are they relying on other people's information? So it's it's trying to determine who is your author. And that goes back to historiography too. I mean, check your date. What is going on in that era that would make a historian write about a certain history, right? Historiography. Um, it, I mean, that date is so important um, because it, there. I, I feel like in history, there's a myth that history is history and nothing ever gets updated. And then when our students are introduced to historiography, they realize, wow, there's so many different ways history is interpreted based off of the era you live in, right? And so just other, you know, definitely check the biography of the author, but uh, uh, just go right down the publication details and, and really think about that too. It doesn't necessarily mean that a source is useful or non-useful, but it's definitely going to help you contextualize a little bit more. And yeah, I mean, frankly, some of them are going to be outdated or they're, they're um, going to have uh, maybe more identifiable bias than than other sources, right? Or um, you know maybe just not useful as all, at all. But the publication data is is really helpful. I think that's a, a great bit of advice, and I think um, too it's really pertinent to questions like, well, if I can't find evidence or or whatever a passage on a certain subtopic or a certain aspect of my research topic, except in a book written on, you know, the Haitian Revolution and that was published in like 1840 or 1850, um, you know, I can't find it in current secondary sources. Can I cite, you know, the 1850 source? And what's the difference between a, you know, when you get into like Chernobyl, right? What's a scholarly article versus, I'm not trying to meta primary and secondary source distinctions here, but I think, um, I think those questions about or comments about uh, context are spot on. I think too, the actual publishing house, uh, look at who's yes. putting the, the book out. Is it, uh, I'll take it again from military standpoint, is it pen and sword or is it West Point or is it University of Kansas? That, that's going to determine the quality because those are going to be vetted sources. Maybe also look to see if you have this, you have this particular public publication, has this author written other things also on similar topics? I mean, how prolific are they in, the, in this area? That might help. 
basically we're getting towards kind of what are the ethical responsibilities of a historian when they're looking for secondary sources. Um, it really is incumbent on the historian who's going to write an article or a book or a paper or a thesis or a dissertation. It's up to that historian. It's that historian's responsibility to figure this stuff out. And they, it's their responsibility to, to look at all of the literature, um, you know, it, it, because the last thing you want when you've published your book is for someone to come back and say, hey, didn't you, you, you didn't read this other book that already did this? That would be a big problem. <laughs> or this other book that directly challenges what you're saying. How do you respond to that? If you've never read that book before, you're going to be you're going to be in trouble. So it really is the historian's ethical responsibility to learn how to do all this stuff. How do I determine what is a legitimate source? And then you have to read everything that's out there on your source. And that can get tedious, but you at least have to look at everything. Maybe not read it cover to cover, but you have to be aware of all of the all of the literature that's out there. And that's that's the historiography part of it that we mentioned before, is that you have to do a thorough analysis of the existing literature, regardless of what that topic is. You have to read everything about it in order to be considered the expert. If you only read a couple of books on it, you're not the expert because there's lots of other stuff out there that you're not exposing yourself to. And so, yeah, it, it all depends on what level we're writing at here in a gen ed course, like history 100. Yeah. Students aren't going to know this stuff and there's no way for us to expect students to know this stuff. But if we're talking grad school, then the student is going to be expected to, to know all that stuff. And this, this conversation that we're having right now is just as applicable to people in grad school as it is to people in a gen ed history course, because people in grad school also have these same types of questions because sometimes they didn't, maybe they weren't even a history major as an undergrad. Maybe because like in our MA program at SNHU, we don't have a requirement that the student has to have a BA in history. They can come with, with anything. And so a lot of them arrive without knowing any of this stuff. And so we can put expectations on students to be responsible for all this stuff, um, depending on what level they are at, in, in, in the program. So, um, and that's difficult. And a lot of students might, you know, recoil at that a little bit thinking, what do you mean I have to read 500 books on World War One if I want to if I want to write a paper on World War One? Well, that's the game. <laughs> that's how historians work. We read. <laughs> and that may seem overwhelming, but that's the job. Right. So I'm reminded of um, in the BA capstone, we there's an assigned reading and the it's about bias interpretation and history. And it's often about selecting your sources. And what the historian argues is that if you do sidestep or bypass those those materials, you're engaging in what he refers to as a crime of omission. You're literally omitting from the historical record something that's vital. Um, he also refers that his name is Bian McCullough. Um, he's also referring to this in terms of selectivity. So you're going to have to select sources. You can't have a bibliography of twenty five thousand books for a 25 page paper. However, your selectivity must be done with an eye towards following your conscience and ensuring that you have an accurate cross section of the extant literature. You're not selecting only those sources that have you've cherry picked that prove your argument. You must engage with sources that actively disagree with your perspective. It might not always happen, but if they're out there, you must at least identify them. But if there's consensus across the board, you also might want to consider, well, if there is kind of, if their consensual perspective is so widely shared, 
what am I making as the contribution to this topic, right? So sometimes you can select a topic because you are interested in it and you for yourself, you'll learn from that process. That's more for say, again, 100, 200, even a 300 level class. Once you're in the, the upper levels, you really do want to at least consider, am I making some type of contribution? It, it might not be building a better mousetrap or reinventing the wheel, but it could be something small and subtle rather than something path-breakingly transformative, right? And that's where we talk about historical synthesis. We're, and depending on what types of sources we bring together, our synthetic approach, our combination of all these different sources might be very different from somebody else's combination. And the way that we organize and structure our writing could yield some different conclusions, even though we are looking at the same exact secondary sources. And I think that can be fun. And I think that does move the needle a little bit in terms of us coming to bigger conclusions about all sorts of topics. When I was in grad school, I actually had a friend in musicology that um, there's historical aspects to his to what he wanted to propose for a dissertation. And he asked, you know, how, how, how do you uh, approach historiography or that should be a component? And um, I think one of the things arising from the conversation is, is that you think that this is something new or you, you've not just uncovered primary sources, but a new way of approaching the, the certain primary sources. You think this is, hasn't been published on uh, recently. You, you should, you know, I would assume the other way. That, um, that it has been published on recently. Um, then again, you know, there are a lot of people receiving PhDs too. So ultimately I think you can't find something new to say. It's just starting out, you should assume that if you have this great idea on what to do, on how to approach a certain topic, um, don't, you know, I, I would you know, be leery of assuming that this is this great category of analysis that you're using or multiple categories of analysis or new sources. Um, or somehow, you know, hasn't been done once, twice, or 10 times. Yeah, that's what, that's a frequent feedback that I leave. I teach the first half of the MA program capstone course, which is basically the research proposal where they say they have to basically propose the project. And every time a student says, nobody's, no historians ever looked at this before. I'm like, hmm, I doubt that. <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> because yeah, odds are, unless you've found some new topic in history that no one's ever thought about, mm, I think you might need to go back and look at your uh, your literature again, to, because I don't, I don't buy it. And on that cheery note, thank you all for joining us today. Join us again in two weeks when the panel will talk about finding primary sources for major research projects. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podbean, Pandora, whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes, and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. This podcast does not represent the views of Southern New Hampshire University, despite everybody's affiliation with it. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, please send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at WorkHistorians. For Eric Greisinger, Allison Millward, CB Repass, Matt Chandler, and Ryan Tripp, I'm Rob Denning. Go build your library.